Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you all for your thoughts and prayers. Some of you know that Jamie's out of town this weekend, so I am a single dad, and um, there's just a lot of bribery with candy going on in the Dunaway home this weekend. We're doing all right. Well, Jamie, or Elliot and Joanna are doing all right. Um, I'm breathing. Uh, We're thinking this month about uh, the values of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus in his teaching, he, he spends, all, you could almost say that all of Jesus' teaching is in some way about the kingdom of God, and very frequently what he teaches is what we're calling the values of the kingdom of God are completely opposed, so to speak, to the values of the world around us that we live in. And I know that seems abstract, um, and some of these thoughts are abstract, but for instance, uh, our, our world, we value utility, like how useful is something? How much can I use something? How much use can I get out of it? Jesus challenges us to say, is it true, is it possible that in the kingdom of God, the value of beauty is more important than the value of utility? Here's another example. Uh, Our world values speed. The faster we can get something done, the faster we can get something accomplished, the faster we can get where we're going, the better. But Jesus challenges us to ask, is it possible that the kingdom of God is intentionally, unashamedly slow? You see, so all of these values that we have in our world, the kingdom of God seems to oppose. And we're going to look actually at the themes of beauty versus utility and a slow kingdom versus a fast kingdom next year. This month, we're thinking, we're spending the whole month thinking about these contrary values of abundance and scarcity. The world around us teaches us to to think of everything as scarce. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is not scarce, it's abundant. And that challenges us in some appropriate ways, and we're going to be challenged this morning, I think, by some of that. But what does it mean that God's kingdom is an abundant kingdom, not a scarce kingdom? Last week, we considered that um, God, God himself is abundant in grace and in love. And so often when we interact even with one another, and I would say with God, we were assuming that, that that person or that even God's affection or love or grace are scarce. Like, we don't want to run out of that supply. But in fact, God's love never runs out. And even in our mistakes and in our sin, His love is ever-present. It's limitless. It's abundant, which sets us free that instead of always being worried about not doing the wrong thing, it sets us free to pursue what is good and right. And we use the image of um, sports coaches coaching their teams to play to win instead of playing not to lose. This week, we're going to consider a little more practically kind of in everyday life, what does God's abundant kingdom mean for us? 
And Jesus tells two short stories, two parables to illustrate this. Let me just read them again because each of the parables is two sentences, a whopping four sentences. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Just imagine a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Simple story. Again, the kingdom is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And he found one of great value and went away and sold everything he had. Sold everything he had. Imagine that and bought it. Now, very often we read questions or we read stories like this, parables like this, teachings of Jesus like this, and we start to get nervous. Especially when we see that phrase, sold everything he had. The question, because the farmer and the merchant sold everything they had, the question we always wonder, at least in the back of our minds, that we worry about, is God asking me to sell everything? It's the old cliche, at least among among pastors, that that certain people don't want to follow Jesus too closely because they're afraid that he'll call them to sell everything and move to Africa and become a missionary. And there's this worry. What if that's me? Could I do it? Um, First and foremost, Jesus does not call everyone to become a missionary to Africa. He does call some to do that, like our friends Ann and Bill Clemmer, who were here just a month and a half ago. Uh, And in fact, uh, another that we'll hear from in three weeks, Sue Jenkins, Beth Goddard's sister. Um, It's also worth pointing out, by the way, that there, there may at this point be more African missionaries to the United States than there are American missionaries to Africa. So even that paradigm is starting to flip. The reality is, though, most of us, Jesus calls to live very faithful, ordinary-looking lives. The trouble, as we're going to see in just a minute with that, is that it can be harder to follow Jesus in the suburbs than it is to follow him in the indigenous bush. It can be harder to follow Jesus when we have a very nicely manicured lawn than it can if we live on a patch of dirt. And that's what we're going to kind of examine this morning. Now back to Jesus' parable. So you have two men. You have a man in a field, and you have a merchant. And at the most basic level, we hear the message. So this is back to our fear. The message that we hear, and I'm going to show you in a minute why I think that's actually the wrong question to ask, but that we hear the message, you should be willing to sell all you have and follow Jesus. And I can't tell you how many preachers, I've probably done this myself, uh, have, have implied at least the question, do you love Jesus enough to sell all you have and follow him? Kind of brings up some guilt and some challenge, and am I good enough? Am I enough? Just how committed are you to Jesus? That's the implied question. I don't think that's a very helpful question, though. I'm not sure if it's strictly speaking wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's unhelpful because it makes a few assumptions that do more harm than good. Here's here's why I think that's an unhelpful question or an unhelpful way to approach these parables and teachings of Jesus. And whenever you read scripture, it always helps to really slow down and ask maybe even the most basic questions of the text. For instance, today, who, who exactly are this man in the field and the merchant? Let's think about the man in the field. He's not a farmer. We know he's a man in a field who, who found, Jesus calls him, he just says it's a man who found a treasure in a field. 
Now think about a field, like any field, really basic, right? Where do you hide something in a field? Most fields have nowhere to hide something except underground. So it's a fair bet that this man found something underground. Now how do you find something underground? Most of us don't just go out with shovels in the middle of fields and start digging indiscriminately. No, he was doing something with a purpose. He's probably plowing. So there's one person who's pushing a plow through a field and the plow hits something. Now, in ancient times, it's probably not all that different from modern times, but especially in ancient times, if you were pushing a plow through a field, that probably meant you were poor enough to not own the field. If you were wealthy enough to own a field, you were also wealthy enough to hire people to work the field for you. You hired laborers, day laborers, cheap labor, immigrant labor maybe, people who are living very destitute lives, hand to mouth, like they're just hoping to scrap scrap together enough money to put a loaf of bread on the table for dinner that night for their families. The man who found that treasure is, by all accounts, probably very poor. The merchant probably isn't a whole lot wealthier. Now, we think of merchants, and we think, oh, businessman, he's successful. He probably suit suit and tie. In, In the ancient world, merchants were not what we think of as businessmen. They were probably also just getting by, maybe half a rung up on the ladder, on the income ladder from the man in the field. But you often didn't appreciate merchants. You tried to steer clear of them because you were always afraid they were trying to pull a fast one on you. Both the man in the field and the merchant are probably very poor, like lower middle class at best. Now both of them come across, quite by accident, the value of a lifetime. They hit the Mega Millions jackpot, the one that was a billion dollars last month. And they sell everything they own, which remember, if you're dirt poor, isn't all that much. And they buy the treasure, the field, the pearl, and gain so much more. You see, we tend to ask the question, would I be willing to sell everything for Jesus? Well, if you own next to nothing, it's a no-brainer. Of course you would. Of course you would. If you were living below the poverty line and you happened to come across the winning lottery ticket, there's nothing you wouldn't do to get that. The difficulty is most of us in the seacoast of New Hampshire are probably, not all, I know there are a few exceptions, but most of us are probably not living below the poverty line, which means the equation is a little bit different for us. We ask, or we hear the question, would I sell everything for Jesus? And we ask with the assumption or the spirit that we're giving up our abundant life and getting a scarce life in return. You see, if you're in poverty, it's, it's like I give away my little fun-sized Snickers bar and I get not even a slightly bigger fun size, but like a king size. And yet many of us assume that Jesus asks us to give up our king size Snickers bar for the little fun size bar that he's going to give us in return. No wonder it's such a difficult question. The question we should be asking is this. Do I believe, do I really believe that the kingdom of God is so much better and more abundant and more joyful and more satisfying than anything I could work and earn for myself? Now, these parables, in some sense, for that reason, they don't quite hit home in the exact way... um, 
that other ones might. So let's just consider one more account. This is one more story. Now, this one's not a parable. This is a story that actually happened to Jesus. I want you to listen to this. There's some very common themes, but there are also some differences. This is a story. This is from Luke 18. It's commonly known as the the rich young ruler. Here's what happened. A certain ruler came up to Jesus and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, the ruler said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Now here we have basically the same question, but in a different context. The man in the field and the merchant are probably very poor. The rich young ruler is, you guessed it, very wealthy. And Jesus asks him the same question. He says, will you sell everything you have and follow me? And how does he respond? The text says, we don't actually know exactly how he responded. All the text says is he went away sad because he was very wealthy. By implication, he said no. Now, we don't know. It's possible that he came back. There are some biblical scholars and commentators who think that that he actually reappears after Jesus' crucifixion and kind of changes his mind. It's possible. We don't know. In that moment, all we know is he, in all likelihood, does not become a follower of Jesus. Why? He went away sad because he had great possessions. His assumption is the same as many of our assumptions. I have worked so hard for all this. I've worked so hard for all this. And Jesus is calling me to give this up. There's no way that he can offer a fraction of what I have built for myself. Jesus must be calling me from a life of relative abundance into a life of scarcity. I think that's our struggle, isn't it? That we tend to fear that Jesus is calling us into his scarce kingdom out of our abundant kingdoms, when in reality, he's calling us out of our scarce kingdoms into his abundant kingdom. The question to ask is not just the surface level, would I sell everything I have? The question to ask is, do I believe the kingdom of God is better, more joyful, more abundant, more filled with life than anything I could conjure up in this life? That's the question. 
uh, Dallas Willard, who recently died, he was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. Uh, he's a Christian, and he wrote in one instance, he said, no one goes sadly or reluctantly into discipleship with Jesus. No one goes in bemoaning the cost. They follow Jesus because they understand the opportunity. Or to put it differently, uh, Dr. David Livingstone was speaking of missionaries to Africa. Dr. David Livingstone, he was a Scottish physician. He became a missionary uh, to Africa. He was actually the first, uh, at least the first white person to walk from one end of Africa to the other, laterally, not north and south. Um, He gave up everything. And he became a missionary to mostly Central Africa, right in the middle. In the mid-1800s, he was back in Cambridge, England, addressing a group of students there. And here's what he said. Here's what he writes. Or here, yeah, it's written down. He said it. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my time in Africa. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it's a privilege. Then he he lists everything he's experienced in Africa. So he says anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life. All these things may make us pause and cause our spirit to waver and our souls to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And he finished by saying quite simply, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Okay, now objectively, did Dr. David Livingston make a sacrifice? Yes. He made many sacrifices. He gave up so much in his life. And yet, what's he saying? He's saying compared to the glory of knowing Christ, compared to the glory of participating in God's kingdom work, it is as though he gave up nothing because look at how much I got in return. Look at the scarce world I left and look at the abundant kingdom into which God has invited me. I was thinking about this just this morning, and I, and I realized, and I usually, it's, by the way, so this is your permission to forget the things I preach, because I forget the things I preached. It just hit me this morning. Two weeks ago, I preached on basically the same thing. I didn't even realize it. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Remember this? Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them, remember that word? I consider them scubala, scubala, that I may gain Christ. God doesn't call us to leave a life of abundance and enter a life of scarcity. He calls us to leave our lives of scarcity and enter his world of abundance which is easy enough to preach about, especially if you keep it in abstract terms like that. But once we start asking more practical questions, it becomes difficult, especially because most of us aren't called to sell everything and become missionaries to Africa. Maybe somebody is. I don't know. But probably not. So if you're not called to sell everything you own and move to Africa and become a missionary, how does this apply? What does this mean? I think in some senses, this principle is actually more helpful in the small day-to-day decisions than in the big 
big, life-altering questions. Because God calls us into his life of abundance, not only in big decisions, but in small, everyday decisions. So much of our walk of faith is small, ordinary decisions. So for instance, when Jesus says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, do you believe that responding to Jesus' invitation to forgive actually leads to abundance? You do have to give something up. When you forgive somebody, you have to give up your pride. You have to give up a measure of comfort. If you forgive them, if you say the words, I forgive you, that's an admission that you, they hurt you. And most of us don't want to admit that we're even capable of being hurt. You're giving up a lot when you say you forgive. But do you believe that there is greater abundance in forgiveness? When you sense Jesus calling you to reconsider maybe what you take in, what kind of media you take in, whether it's shows that you watch or whether it's websites that you visit or whatever it is, there's a sacrifice. You, could it be that Jesus is calling you to give something up? And yet, could it be that he's not just calling you to give something up, but he's calling you to enter into something more, a more abundant, more joyful, more lively kingdom? You see? God calls us, God calls us to abandon our counterfeit abundance and to receive his true abundance. Or how about how we spend our time? This is the one that really hits home for me, okay? Uh, if Jesus' promise is true, that following him leads to eternal life, how does the promise of eternal life, not just eternally like it lasts forever, but maybe even it's eternal right now, like there's more to it than we can sink our teeth into, how does that change how we think about our time? Very early on, after our first daughter was born, I was talking to my dad on the phone, and I was saying, Dad, I, can't, I just can't believe how little time I have. And those of you who, who have had or currently have young children understand. It, like, isn't it incredible how much time and energy a 20-pound human being can, can demand of you? You have nothing. I said, Dad, I can't believe how much time, and I'm really, like, frustrated. I don't have time to do anything. And he just kind of laughed, and he's like, yep, your life is no longer your own. I thought, thanks for understanding, Dad. <laughs> now that we have two kids, one kid seems easy in hindsight. But having kids, as it often does, it, it exposes all of our selfish inclinations, doesn't it? Like, you realize how selfish you are once you have kids. And for me, I'm realizing that one of my selfish things that I hold on to, that I think God is always constantly inviting me into, is, is my time. I value, you want to you know what I value? Free time. Leisure time. Like the time, the right, as if it were a right anyway, to, to decide what I'm going to do with my time. And if I want to do something productive, that's great. Or if I just want to lay on the couch and play my little Sudoku puzzles on the phone, I can. But like when you, in, when you infringe on my right to choose how I spend my time, that's when I start getting angry and possessive. And you see, what is Jesus inviting? He's inviting me to love my family. <laughs> He's inviting me to love my daughters, and, and as anybody, again, who has kids knows that there's no such thing as quality time without quantity time. And I feel my abundant free time being threatened, and what Jesus says is actually maybe that's more scarce than you realize, and maybe there is more abundance to be found in getting on your hands and knees and playing with your girls than there is in playing your stupid little Sudoku puzzle in, in the first place.
You see, Jesus calls each of us in very ordinary ways to consider what do I think is abundant and what am I desperately white-knuckling when in fact Jesus calls me to loosen my grip so that he can give me something more and better. It hurts to give up, I know. It hurts. But what if Jesus' kingdom actually is more abundant? If we saw how abundant it truly were, we would be right there with the man in the field or the merchant, wouldn't we? Realizing the scarcity, the poverty of what we own and the wealth that he offers. It would be a no-brainer. Of course you can have my fun-sized Snickers bar if you're giving me the king size or bigger. You see, this isn't a question of is God calling me to sell everything and move to Africa? And by the way, if he is calling you to sell everything, like, you should do that too. I'm not saying he's not. But this is so much more. It's a question of where, even in my, my like, ordinary pedestrian life, is God challenging me? Is the Holy Spirit challenging me to realize what I thought was so abundant might be scarce? And his kingdom that I thought might be scarce, might be kind of paltry, is actually so much more than I realized. Let me close, close with this one last thought. I use the word invite very intentionally. In the parable, both parables, the man in the field and the merchant with the pearl, neither of them was forced to sell everything they owned. They chose to. They didn't have to. It was a no-brainer, but they didn't have to. And even in the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus doesn't force the rich young ruler to follow him. And in fact, that man chose not to. He chose not to. Jesus invited him. He didn't force him. And that man said no. Jesus will not force you to do much of anything. He he invites, but he won't force. And you can say no and turn down his invitation. You have that freedom but he invites us to leave everything that we have accumulated for ourselves behind, all our abundance in this world behind, because his abundance is greater than than any wealth we could accumulate. His abundance is greater than any reputation we could accumulate. It's greater than any comfort or leisure time we could accumulate. It's better than any security we could accumulate, all the things we work so hard for, Jesus says, I can give you so much more. Will you just follow me? Maybe the reason we don't sacrifice is because we have too anemic a vision of the kingdom of God. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it, and I'll close with this. This, I I read this quote probably twice a year, but it's that good. This is from uh, The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Will you receive the true abundance that Jesus offers? Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we often think our kingdoms that we have built for ourselves are more abundant than yours. Forgive us. 
open our eyes, cause the scales to fall from our eyes, and help us to see that your kingdom, your kingdom is worth leaving everything else behind to enter. Thank you for your invitation. Give us the grace to weigh this decision clearly. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.